You're listening to a Morley Radio production. Welcome to Artcast Season 4, Episode 3. Artcast is presented by Matt G, Programme Area Manager of Fine Art at the Chelsea Centre, part of Morley College London. The podcast is a series of informal discussions with professional artists and designers, accompanied by students who are studying here with us at the Chelsea Centre. For this episode, I'm delighted to say we've got Alfie Dwyer with us, and I'm also joined with two students from our art foundation, Nico Conte and Ivo Evans. Hello. Hey. Good Hello. <laughs> um, cool. So I'll just go through a bit about Alfie, and then I'll ask both of you to say a little bit about where you're at with your foundation course. So Alfie Dwyer creates short, surreal journeys into bizarre and visually stunning realms. His inspiration often stems from lucid dreaming, and he views his videos as quick glimpses into these fleeting dreamscapes. Describing his work, he identifies himself as a multimedia artist, animator, and filmmaker. So as mentioned, I've also got two foundation students with us. Uh, I was wondering if Nico Conte, you could introduce yourself and tell us what you've been making recently. Yeah, I'm Nico. I'm 18 and I'm a foundation student here at Morley. Um, most of my work up until now has been kind of traditional fine art. So a lot of sculpture, 3D and um, installation stuff. Um, but my most recent project was actually very focused on dreams and the kind of collective images that come um, up in a lot of people's dreams and in a lot of people's imaginations and how we kind of share a lot of the same, I don't know, it's like the have you seen this man phenomenon, how like a lot of people have seen the same man in their dreams, things like that, um, where a lot of us share the same ideas based on how we're experiencing life and how that bleeds into the subconscious. So, yeah. Great, thank you. Um, and Ivo? Yeah, um, I'm also 18. I'm a student on that foundation course as well. My, I kind of came from a different background, did a lot of like product design, CAD work, but I kind of chose to do this course to kind of move away from that and more into art. And recently, as part of the last project, I've kind of dabbled in a bit of animation um, along with kind of trying to tie in my own interests from music. I make music on the side and I've been trying to look at like reactive animation with music and kind of how I can use that to kind of um, fulfill the briefs of the projects I've been doing. Great, thank you so much Ivo. Um, and Alfie, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks so much for having me. Um, nice to hear from you guys as well. Um, thanks for the nice introduction as well. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Thank you. Great. Um, the first question we ask all our guests is what is your favourite colour and why? <laughs> I've actually been overthinking this question for about two and a half weeks because I listened to some of the previous episodes. <laughs> um, I would, I, I actually had a dream. Well, I was going to say like orange or something like that as um, I guess I feel like safe and warm in orange. I wear a lot of orange. Um, but I had a dream that I, I told you it was x-ray because um, that kind of counts as a color, as, you know, wavelength of light and that. Um, so that, that, that sounds kind of cool. Let's go for that. Go for x-ray. Interesting. Thanks. Uh, so, and are you listening to any music at the moment? Uh, what kind of music do you listen to to get in? The, do, you, do you listen to music to get into the zone when you're working? Mm -hmm. 
I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, it's kind of the benefit of like visual work is that I can just sit down and just constantly listen to podcasts and learn things while I work. Um, so I'm very interested in like paranormal podcasts and things. Hmm. Um, but also listen to a lot of electronic music, like Aphex Twin, for example. Um, and I really like Klezmer. Uh, I've been a big fan of that for years as well. Uh, so yeah, quite quite a variety. What kind of music is Klezmer? Um, it's like soulful Jewish music. Um, it's kind of got like an accordion uh, and a clarinet. Um, mm. It just really speaks to me for some reason. Um, yeah, been 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 a big big fan of it for years, and yeah, can easily just sink into hours of it. Great. Um, I recently read in an interview that you said ninety nine percent of your work is digital, and I was wondering what you'd say the other one percent was. <laughs> Um, very occasionally I dabble in things like painting um, and I, I'm, I'm currently trying to move more into things like sculpture uh, and painting uh, as that's kind of where, where I originally started like in in the very beginning of uni I was doing a lot more painting works um, just really enjoy the kind of freedom of painting but I think I was always I'd never paint one painting I'd always paint like four or five paintings in a row and kind of create a series of them um, which I then just, you know, then evolved into 25 paintings, 30 paintings, 40 paintings. Um, and I suddenly realized I, I liked things kind of in series. Um, and that's where my kind of interest in moving image um, came from. Um, so I've kind of, yeah, I've, I've slightly moved away from uh, my physical, physical realms, but I'm trying to get back into it currently. Great. Um, and what's your sort of studio setup? Do you have um, any assistance or is it uh, yourself and your, your software and your hardware? Um, I've got a little desk space uh, down near Spike Island in Bristol um, that I kind of I call it a studio to kind of maintain my uh, sense of artist integrity, uh, but it's more of like an office space. Um, but I try and make it look like not a studio. I basically just, um, yeah, I, I work by myself 99% of the time um, just with a laptop um, on Blender, which is a free 3D software mm -hmm. I use. Um, and a few other bits and bobs, but yeah, it's, it's very solo in my work. Like I do enjoy collaboration, um, but a lot of the time I'm a little bit of a kind of, I just really like to have the fun of saying the work and I like it to be as kind of weird and solely as close to as me as possible. So I do tend to kind of do things by myself quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And who would your dream collaboration be? Or has this already happened? <laughs> Good question. Um, I mean, yeah, I've been really, really lucky um, in the past few years. Like, I, I wrote part of my uni dissertation on Eric Andre uh, and was a massive fan of him and then kind of by chance ended up working with him a couple of years ago, uh, which was, yeah, one of the biggest opportunities I've had in my life. Uh, so that, that felt like a dream. And then working with Aphex Film was a massive dream as well. I've been a fan of his, his music for years as well. Um, I'd love to work with... Uh, some physical artists, like I'm really into um, David Altmade. Uh, I've been into his sculpture for the past like few years. Um, yeah, would love to work with someone like him or Easter Style as well as a big influence on me. Um, but, but yeah, um, yeah, that's about it. I'm sure yeah. more will come from that. 
And with that um, Eric Andre work, how much of the elements within the video were sort of left to your creative direction? So, for example, there was, there was drones carrying some hot dogs, a spherical pe <laughs> pendulum of pepperoni pizza, or there's a load of mini Eric Andres dancing and tormenting a sort of stunned-looking Eric. And I, 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 don't know, I was just wondering how, how much of that was sort of led by the, the brief or um, left to yourself. Because there's a lot um, that happens in it. I mean, that's what's great about your work. Yeah. so much going yeah. on. Yeah, I kind, of, I kind of like. I'm often not happy with the video until I want to rewatch it myself, like twenty or thirty times over. And that's that's. I fill them with so many details that, um, yeah, I, I want to just like keep it going and keep watching it. And that's kind of how I know when I'm done with something. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you picked up on all those details too. Um, a lot of those details were actually from directly from the Eric Andre show. I, as mentioned, I was already a big fan of it. Um, but I think just before I got that job. I'd rewatched the entire series. Um, so I had loads of it fresh in my mind um, and, and kind of wrote them all down. The, the idea itself of the kind of spinning hypercube going between different series was my direction. Um, but those elements are all like references to actual things that happen in the series. Yeah. And the other collaborator you mentioned, of course, was working with uh, Weirdcore and Apex Twin. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I was actually at that build day gig and for me that oh, nice. notice, most notable part was that underground train sort of mash up with the, the donkey rhubarb bears and sort of yeah. navigating their way through a network of the the different tunnels and laced of different posters and logos of apex twin and i was wondering uh did you did you witness this sort of gig scam has been quite a proud moment and i was also wondering how much again was directed by richard aka apex twin or um Sort of left to your own devices, so to speak. Hmm. I'm glad you were there. Yeah, that was that was one of the kind of coolest moments of my life. Um, I was in the crowd as well, losing my mind somewhere watching it. Um, I I don't actually. So I, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to chat to Richard. I would have loved to, but I think he's quite um, kind of secretive. Mm -hmm. uh, like you know, he seems to do about one interview every five years or something like that. So. I wasn't banking on um, getting to chat to him directly, but I chatted a lot to um, Weirdcore. It was really nice to work with him. Um, but he he gave me uh, kind of lots of different ideas for um, certain elements that he'd be interested in. For example, like iconic Apex Twin elements, um, and he kind of gave me the, the themes of the um, EP itself, being this kind of black box life recorder EPs called um, that just got released. Um, it's the idea that Richard, all the songs that Richard's created throughout the years, um, are, is the kind of like the black box, the kind of the, the object recording his lifespan and his, his musical equipment is that kind of black box. So there's this kind of like mashup of, um, biology, like the, like Richard as the machine. Kind of. So it's that mixing like, uh, mechanical synthesizer elements and, biological elements at the same time uh, and that was something i was kind of already interested in and had been experimenting with bits and bobs um and i hit up weirdcore on instagram uh, around february this year um with this kind of uh, 3d feedback uh, 3d video feedback effect um, i've been creating um and he, he was really interested so we just kind of got chatting from there um that's how the job came about and um, yeah, he, he he left. To be honest, he left quite a bit up, a lot a lot of it up to me, which is really nice. Um, 
it was one of my favorite jobs I've worked on because of how freeing it was. Um, that tube sequence, for example, Weirdcore had mentioned that he was into tubes and had done stuff on the London Underground, underground before. Mm. Um, I didn't tell him I was making that asset. There's a few assets that I just kind of made on my own accord. Mm. So the, the job was kind of done. I was kind of done all I'd been paid to do, but I, I realized this was my kind of one opportunity to work with one of my heroes. So I went a little bit crazy with it and probably put in far too many extra weeks um, on top. And just before the field day gig, I sent him those train elements um, and the circuit board elements and a few others um, and was delighted that we the show as well. Yeah. Uh, he, I was surprised. I didn't, I didn't know if it was going to use them. So when I saw them, I was, I was really happy. And did you manage to pick up any of this merchandise? I didn't actually know. I, I was, it was my dad's 70th birthday oh, um, right. on the day of the gig. Uh, so I was being a very bad son and um, going to a gig. Uh, so I kind of had halfway through the set, I had to run home for a 70th. Yeah. It was it was great, though. I mean, uh, for an, uh, as an open-air experience, sometimes the sound can kind of get lost, but it, it didn't. It seemed to really build in terms of intensity. I think it was probably the most overstimulated I've ever been, <laughs> ever. Wait, you were there as well? Yeah, because oh, right. I'd, um, I'd stood through Arca's set, um, which was right before Aphex's, yeah. and mm. me and my friends were kind amazing. of, you know, getting cold, and we were thinking, oh, okay, we can't drink too much water because we don't want to need the toilet, and we can't, like, get too mm. active or like lose focus or else we, you know we're gonna have people pushing to the front and i just remember seeing the big black box that was suspended from sort of like above the deck and all of us just getting really excited even though that was still maybe an hour and a half until the set and all of us just going oh my god rich is here rich is here <laughs> yeah it was it, it, it they are ridiculously intense it's quite funny because yeah you, you listen to half of apex Twins music and it's so kind of calm and peaceful uh, and then you get, get absolutely smacked with that audio visual um yeah, yeah it's the combination of a sort of crescendo of genres of music mixing combined with visuals by yourself and other artists and it's just it all comes together into one pretty mind-bending experience it's like the music was being vomited onto the screens like all the different <laughs> instruments and aspects were just being thrown onto the screen like looking down and looking up and there's like a train and then there's like molly may on the screen and like this random <laughs> slideshow and it was it was really interesting i was at the bristol show too uh and i saw <laughs> uh, about about 10 minutes into the set there was kind of a dad pacing we were right near the front this dad was kind of like squeezing his way through the crowd uh going like chill very sad children coming through and there were two of these these kind of six-year-old kids like in tears with Aphex Twin t-shirts being like dragged out of the crowd by their dad <laughs> but obviously kind of not expecting the uh intensity of the strobes i couldn't wow. sleep that night either as well my eyes and ears were ringing for about an hour or two yeah the was front like was full of all these people who had like high-tech ear defenders and like earplugs and they pulled it up and they were like stood by the barrier nodding along to the music and all the rest of us were like ah like trying to keep up with all of the visuals because <laughs> we were getting all the music all the lights and all of the pictures <laughs> could I possibly... yeah, your brain starts to glitch after a while of that could i possibly interject with a question about that yeah. um and just kind of what um what do you think is the importance between like visuals, especially in like the electronic genre, where there's no kind of sort of um, almost like front man, where there's like a band or something? Like, how important do you think kind of that is for their like to work in tandem with the music? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm. Um, this is this is actually my first time ever doing music visual, like live stage visuals. Yeah. Um, 
So it's, it's quite new new to me. But I, I've seen it work the opposite before. For example, I've seen Fortet live uh, in Portugal years ago, and he just had these. It was it was almost pitch black the entire set, and that worked in a totally different way. Um, so you kind of just focus on the music, and that I found really beautiful, and transformative as well. Uh, but that was kind of a more slow, peaceful, ambient set, and there's yeah. something quite nice about the just focusing in on the the people around you and everything going on. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's almost more grounding, whereas the the kind of Aphex Twin and Strobe Lights is a bit more kind of heady. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I saw a Tetra with the lights off, and they turned even the fire escapes off, which is technically illegal. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I think the lack of lyrics as well in the music probably helps like the visuals stand out more, because I almost feel like the performancey aspect of, say, an artist who's on stage with a band and you know all of their names mm. and um, they have all these music videos out, and a lot of the time the visuals are just sort of replicating the music video but with electronic music and like even ambient music where it's like just sounds and your body's reacting to the sounds and I feel like if you were to have gone to field day filmed everyone and then like edited out the music and edited out the visual you just see a bunch of people sort of shaking and spazzing (laughs) sober or not just because like that's what the sounds are doing to you and I think that the visuals as like intense as they were do reflect that and I think that it's just as effective when it's sort of you know, pitch black, it's almost like a squat rave kind of situation. Like you're in a cave and there's no lights. You're just hearing like, say, I don't know, Fortet's music playing. It's all very, I feel like it's more bodily. Hmm. It must, it must've been quite nice as well, working with the music video as well as the visuals for the, for the gigs as well. So sort of spanning across the different mediums. Yeah, that was really nice. That um, I had. It's quite, that was an interesting process for that one because I kind of I'd kind of come up with this this slices technique, um, and we were originally just using that for the live visuals. Uh, I think Weirdcore liked it, wanted to feed it somehow into the music video as well. Um, so that came a little bit later into the process, um, and I it, he was directing me on creating these. Uh, they're like molecular chain beasts with this kind of messed up Apex Twin face on the middle of them. He was directing me and making those, and I was kind of sending him renders of the kind of cut into slices for this technique. Um, and I, I really had no idea how the video was going to look until like a day or two before it was released. Um, I, I was mo- I, so it was, it, was quite, it was quite freeing in a way, like handing over my assets. I think I was saying in the beginning, like I can be a little bit protective sometimes uh, in wanting to know exactly what the kind of final thing is going to look like. But... Um, had a lot of faith in Woodcore because uh, he had seen his incredible videos before. So I kind of was quite happy to just kind of give them to him and see see what happened. But yeah, I was very proud of that as well. Hmm. Great. And you've collaborated with a lot of musicians um, over the years. Um, one in particular was Dwyer, who's your, your brother. Um, and I was wondering how that was uh, as an experience um, working on his single Time to Go. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's an older one. Um, I've always been very blessed uh, to have a very creative family. My, I think like, yeah, my brother, my two brothers, my sister and my dad are all musicians um, and visual artists as well. But, but yeah, lots of them do music. Um, so it's always been great for me who's been very visually focused and every time I need some, some music, uh, I can always kind of go to them to, to sort me out basically because I'm, I'm not very musically minded. Um, but yeah, that, that, that video was, um, 
was very inspired by another animator called Jaron Braxton. Shout out to him, uh, who first kind of inspired me to get into 3D animation. Uh, kind of about six months before the beginning of the first coronavirus lockdown, and I made that video um, and spent a good few weeks on it, um, getting totally kind of lost in it as in the very early Blender days for me. Mm. Um, and that that was the video that kind of somewhat started getting me of more attention, which is very nice. As it wasn't seen by loads of people, but it, it was seen by a, um, a director called Will Hooper. Uh, shout out to him as well. Um, who then uh, got me into doing my first ever industry job in industry jobs. So that was that was kind of the stepping stone. Um, doing that video, and it's so nice doing it with my brother as well. Uh, as yeah, I think I just told him a loose idea of what it was going to be, and he was super down for it. He's yeah, always been very easy to work with. Um, yeah, and really love his music as well. Cool. Could I possibly follow it up? Sorry, just because I'm yeah, kind of, of in a similar si- well at the start of my. I've just started kind of experimenting with Blender because um, oh, nice. I, I, I kind of I came from like a um, doing a lot of CAD work previously at A level, and then I kind of I'd, t- I'd use it a tiny bit, but not much. And I'm kind of in the same realm thinking about music. But I just what was your kind of um, way into industry? Like, what did you what uni degree and kind of what was that journey like? At you know, say eighteen or nineteen, mm-hmm. like then I guess, but back when you whenever you were. Um, doing your uni degree yeah sure i um so i, I did fine art in kingston uni um i did I, I mostly did painting and stuff in the first year or two and then slowly moved more into slowly moved more into animation i think no sorry that's not true actually i slowly moved more into moving image i was doing film uh things but it was kind of more i would get in a morph suit and run around and do kind of some digital comedy-esque things yeah. uh which are yeah a lot of fun um and then it was only it was only, I think, two years after graduating that I picked up animation. I downloaded Blender, which is a three D software, yeah. and Ableton, which is a music software, uh, in the same night, just out of curiosity to see if any of them would be of interest to me. And I got really obsessed with Blender very quickly. Did it for probably around. I was living at home at this point. I just moved back in with my parents and. I was spending most evenings doing about an hour or so of Blender, just making these yeah. little kind of dream worlds. And then I made this music video uh, for my brother, my first attempt at doing something a bit longer and something moving image. Um, and then I, it was picked up by this Will Hooper um, uh, uh, director. Then did I, it, it was really lucky to be honest. Yeah. Um, just one of those things that kind of fell into place. Yeah, like I, I it, it coincided very well with um, darkly the coronavirus pandemic as well. Because yeah. I he he got me on my first job, which was to build a kind of low poly, low fi three D model of this uh, pop star called Declan McKenna, and it kind of looks like this kind of PS2 style yeah. model. It wasn't exactly what I was going for. I just wasn't very good back then, but kind of played it off as if I was going yeah, for that style. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then made that. And then, uh, and then yeah, coronavirus happened pretty much immediately after. And the whole music video industry suddenly, um, yeah, it, you know, it, it totally panicked because obviously they can't, they need to keep producing content for their artists. They can't film. Physically exactly. Yeah. 
yeah so so then they were like oh who can build 3d models mm. of pop stars oh this guy alfie seems to have just done it for Declan mckenna let's hire him so i suddenly got this yeah i noticed a lot animation really boomed at the beginning of the first program. yeah i guess it's one of those and things that like, kind of went hand in hand when you couldn't do the physical the kind of online kind of play start to play a big role especially in the, the music industry as well mm-hmm. yeah totally um yeah so that that's kind of how it, how it came about really but but so, that, so there was luck in it there um I would say I was I was pretty dedicated as well. Yeah, I was just, I was making things and I was releasing them like every day or two, just kind of making not really like trying to make the best things I've ever made, but just making things and just kind of putting them out there on Instagram, showing friends or I was submitting to a lot of film competitions at the time. Um I was direct messaging a lot of people. Um so for example, very lucky to have worked with people like Adult Swim. Yeah. Um and I, I got that fairly early on and that was from i realized that there's no way i could direct message their instagram accounts and like three million followers yeah they'd, they'd, they'd take me seriously and i yeah i was also at the very beginning of my career um but i found one of their creative directors on vimeo or something oh, like yeah, that and nice. he had a few followers there but i could see his account was active i could see he was posting things occasionally um so i wrote this kind of clickbaity like <laughs> message to him um, tried to make it sound as like enticing as I possibly yeah. could and big myself up massively and gave him this crazy idea that I think it worked. He, 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 you know, he responded to me, which I was really happy for. Yeah. He, he didn't, he did say, he did acknowledge. And yeah, response is, quite, is a big win. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And he did say I wasn't quite ready for it. Um, but he did, but then that, that got me contact with Adult Swim. Yeah. So then it, it was lots of little things like that and like Weirdcore, for example, as well with Apex Twin, like, it was around the same time when I contacted Adult Swim when I was just starting out. I contacted Weirdcore because I found his email address on his website and I just sent him an idea and just mm. said, hey, I'm just starting out in 3D. I'd love to do this, have this idea. And yeah, he took me seriously back then, which was very nice. Yeah, no. It didn't, didn't, the idea didn't quite work out, but um, I was still really happy that it took me seriously. So yeah, I just recommend reaching out to as many people. Just trying to get ideas. your work out then, produce volume, I guess, as well as the, as the other thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Awesome. Um, yeah, don't don't be afraid to message people. Um, yeah, particularly if you've got an interesting idea, you can show them. As well. Yeah, no, I've been trying. I've been looking a lot on, um, especially with Blender, trying to make like interactive elements. I guess my last project was part of uh, the foundation course. Like I did a musical like composition in the background, but it, it kind of so the whole thing was about grids, maps, and that. So it kind of it started off with like um, this almost like tunnel sequence of these grids and then it kind of it all started to roll around this orb that was almost like a heartbeat and it would like pulsate to the beat of the music and i was kind of quite interested in like the inter like the kind of tying the the music to the animation and making them like interact like kind of together almost in like two separates where it's like the music and this is what you're looking at it's like you're kind of experiencing them both in the same thing so it's something i'm definitely looking to get more into and hopefully apply for some degrees more like digital art based and like animation like uh graphics and stuff like that but yeah no, thank you so much for the, for the response yeah, to that question very useful for someone like me <laughs> yeah no, no no of course um and it's nice to hear that you're, yeah, you're tying the sound and the visuals together as well like it's yeah having them tied together just like what am i trying to say i, I never release animations without sound like sound is such yeah, an important, very important part, part yeah yeah, it, it really kind of brings you in, particularly things like Foley as well, like mm. really just kind of brings you into that 
like adding these kind of textural elements just really helps bring the viewer into the world. Yeah, so. that's the thing I really quite enjoy about Blender is that it doesn't actually take that much for something to look good. Like you just need to like <laughs> mess with the render settings and add a couple of like effects, and they can actually like you can make something in, like ten minutes look like you know like studio quality, which is quite which is yeah. quite fun when you're you know trying to try to start out. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Cool. Um, I was going to ask you a pragmatic question about lucid dreaming. I was wondering, is that something that's uh, naturally occurring with yourself or is it something you sort of facilitate or induce? Like, um, what's the sort of process? Or is it, it, was it something that sort of started inspiring the work or did the work start inspiring the dreaming? Do you know, yeah. I don't know if that's where that question's going, really. But um. no, it's a good question. I, I, I like the end bit as well. Uh, I never thought of it that way around with the, um, the work inspiring the dreaming, but I bet it does. I've I've been uh, interested in lucid dreaming for probably fourteen, fifteen years or so. Um, I I'd had nightmares a lot growing up as a kid, hmm. and I'd always recognised it was a nightmare towards the end of the nightmare at the kind of crux point when the, you know, the demon's in your face or whatever it may be. Um, and at that moment, I would forcibly wake myself up. I'd kind of push my eyelids open. So, and, you know, kind of exit the nightmare, essentially. But I think it was a year or two, like, after, probably when I was, like, 13, 14, 15, something like that, you know, watching a National Geographic documentary that briefly mentioned lucid dreaming. And from then I was hooked. So I realized that in that moment of the nightmare when I realized I was dreaming and therefore I could wake myself up, that technically constituted as lucid dreaming as that's a moment of awareness while in the lucid state. So I decided that I could try in the future rather than wake myself up from that moment to try stay inside the dream, dis- dispel the nightmare if possible uh, and stay conscious in the dream world. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't manage to do that particular thing probably until quite a few years later in lucid dreaming. But I took up a regular practice of uh, reality checks as one of the things, keeping a dream journal. Right. Um, there's lots of different techniques that I can kind of uh, go over if you fancy. But it's, um, yeah, it was, definitely, it was definitely an effort. But it, I, it's, it's not as huge a hurdle as some people might think. I really recommend it. It's, it's done leaps and bounds. It's like brain training, isn't it? Like you're training yourself to rather than wake up to stay in that dream. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And so it it does take a little bit of getting used to. um, But I think it was probably just two weeks to a month of concentrated effort, just maybe like an hour or even just a, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour a day of these practices, um, particularly called the reality checks and lucid dreaming. If anyone's interested in looking it up, Mm. that was my kind of entry into lucid dreaming. And from then on, it's been largely natural. Uh, it's something I taught myself, and now probably lucid dream. It varies, but can't, like without any practice, I'll lucid dream about three times a week. Wow. If I'm in a more regular practicing um, time period, it can be you know two or two or three at night. Uh, but it's yeah, it really influences my work, um, particularly my interest in uh, kind of exploring space and time. Um, due to that kind of nature in a dream when you can, you kind of pass from one area of a dream to another. You pass from one section of a dream to another section of a dream. You don't quite remember the kind of transition period between them. Um, that, that definitely influences my animations and my transitions quite a lot. I was going to say, there's a piece called Zezi Maps, with, spelled with Z, 
where it's a, mm-hmm. this animation that feels very uncanny. It starts with like a, a normal Google Earth tour of it with the sort of little green yellow man that you, you plonk onto a map and then suddenly buildings begin to slowly morph and portals open and these monsters appear under paving slabs and all of a sudden a seemingly normal Google Earth experience turns into this sort of Grand Theft Auto video style gaming experience. It's pretty, yeah, pretty trippy, but for me that was that was very, as accurate, one of the most accurate pieces I've seen of what I feel an artwork showing a dream would be like, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's like trying, trying to capture that flavor of a dream is really challenging. Like you, can, you can describe a dream to someone and you can say, oh yeah, and my hand turned into a fish or whatever. And they can kind of like chuckle and laugh about it and stuff, but like trying to get across that feeling of what it was like being there in the atmosphere is so hard to to um to represent so i'm, I'm glad that you uh, you felt that was as enough so, so I, i'm really proud of that piece as well so thank you yeah that it's, it's, it's so good for inspiration like you can i find as an artist you can be so inspired by things in the daytime you have loads of different pieces of inspiration little things you see other artists work you admire things you pass in the street and, and trying to put them down in a sketchbook and combine them which feels so clunky like different pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that just don't quite fit together but there's something so fluid about it in the kind of subconscious mind when you fall asleep that it just almost happens accidentally like you can i could even turn around in a dream and say oh i want there to be a gallery behind you turn around and there'd be like a gallery full of artwork that's there's is mine and i haven't made it i didn't i didn't didn't consciously create any of these pieces but they are of all of my inspiration you wake up and it feels like uh it feels like plagiarism i feel like i'm stealing someone else's idea Mm -hmm. because i stole it from this gallery inside my own head but it was just inside your head we can all do this yeah no i think that's really interesting and like ivo said our last project was called grid nets and maps and i feel like those are all things that are used to confine space and confine time, like um, holding something in. But I kind of interpreted it through dream mapping because I'd seen this artist work on, I think it was Tumblr or something, and um, this artist called Susan Hiller. And in the 70s, she made five people sleep in a field and record their dreams, like through drawings on tracing paper. And every night she would stack up all of the people's um, drawings. And obviously because tracing paper's transparent, you could see like other people's dreams on another oh, wow. person's dream um, sort of stacked up on top of each other. And then at the end of the five nights, they kind of tried to put together all of the drawings into a jigsaw puzzle to try and work out if because they were in the same space, living the same life essentially for five days, if their dream spaces were connected. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so like, um, and you know, a lot of those drawings were kind of just quick sketches, especially, you know, you wake up from a dream a lot of the time. I try to write down all my dreams, but half of the time I forget because it's everything's happening so fast and it's quite difficult to record. Um, but in the drawings, there are these really basic drawings, but there were certain motifs coming up regularly. Um, and some people who were, say, sleeping next to each other were kind of having these epiphanies because they felt that they were having similar dreams towards the end of the five days. So I think sort of exploring that in this last project um, has also made me very interested in dreams. I don't necessarily think I've had a lucid dream before, but I've definitely had the opposite dream paralysis where I'm kind of 
stuck unwillingly. And so I think it's very impressive that you've been able to train yourself to kind of stay inside the dream space. Because I think especially if you're using it as inspiration in your art, um, it's a very useful thing to be able to have some kind of control within that space because it's a non-physical space. That's incredible. I, I, I need to look at that project. That sounds really nice. It fits so, fits so nicely with what I was saying about the jigsaw pieces of the kind of uh, inspiration throughout the day as well. It's fantastic. Um, I had something else I was going to say there. I, it, it really is another world. Um, and I, I have friends that have had shared dreams before, um, particularly like partners that are kind of sleeping next to each other on a regular occasion. Um, that I've reported two or three times that they were kind of in the same dream space. So um, it's a pretty interesting world. Like I being 10 or so, yeah, 10, 15 years down the line with lucid dreaming, um, it starts to get pretty interesting. Like like some, some very out of the ordinary things happen that, can, um, that you, you wouldn't describe to it being just a, you know, just a little daydream inside your head, just a little kind of fancy world that it starts to um, build on kind of like a realness in itself that can, that really affects you in your waking life. Like, I've had some very profound dreams that have kind of had had this effect on me. That that kind of lead me to believe that there's there's more to uh, reality than we can possibly understand. Um, which which has an effect on inspiration, effect on artwork. Um, and I will just say as well, uh, it's interesting you've had sleep paralysis experiences. I I used to be quite scared of them, um, but I've learned now that you can you can kind of harness them to your own good. Um, they are. They're essentially these um, self-influencing states. Like if you are, because you're in this kind of hallucinatory state in sleep paralysis, you can. It, it's very common that you're, you know, you're you're paralyzed. You're kind of stuck in your bed, and lots of people report, you know, a sleep paralysis demon or something like that. Um, but and that's often because you're in this hallucinatory state, and your body's like, "Why am I paralyzed? Is it either because there's something very heavy sitting on my chest?" Or is it because there's something so terrifying in the room that it's kind of causing this, this frightful experience? And then that kind of, and then you get more scared. And then because it's this, you're in this hallucinatory state, kind of almost like a feedback loop, you kind of get more scared and you get more scared and you get more scared. And it can lead to, you know, people having some frightful experiences. But what's really good to know is it can work in the other direction as well. In that if you tell yourself you're totally safe in the space, you can, you can relax. And then that can, that can feed back on itself as well. You can enter like a really beautiful, blissful state lying down in sleep uh, it can be yes had some of those some of the beautiful experiences i've had been through sleep paralysis yeah when if, um sorry, oh, sorry to interrupt you no, um, no, no but no, when sorry. i was having my sleep paralysis with paralysis it was mainly when i was a young child like around eight or nine and my bed was facing my dresser which had all of my sort of trinkets and photos i had like old photos as well of like my grandparents and things like that and i ended up rotating my bed into a really awkward position um so that i wasn't facing the door because the door was right next to the dresser and i found that Mm. the sleep paralysis got a lot less intense if it was kind of set in my bedroom because my bed went from facing a very like facing all of these faces and all of these objects that during the night were sort of scary looking because they were shadows i went to from that to facing a blank wall and it became a lot oh, more nice. serene after that because I think there was there were less things to be scared of. That's really nice. It's because you found your own like solution to influencing that kind of calm state. 
you, you can also, if you want to take it a step further, if you ever find yourself in it again, um, it's, it's one method of lucid dreaming. It's called a wake-induced lucid dream or a WILD or a WILD. Uh, and that's that's a way of entering a lucid dream through sleep paralysis. You can essentially have um, kind of an out-of-body experience, I guess. And, uh, it, it gives the impression of, I'm not saying it's exactly what's happening, um, that you're stepping out of your body and kind of entering directly into a lucid dream. Uh, had some pretty crazy experiences through that. Um, my piece, Astral Projection Mapping, uh, if anyone's seen it, is, is based on that, uh, that premise. Yeah, yeah, give that a go. That sounds way. really interesting. Trying to harness control of that space where you feel so trapped. Totally, yeah. It's like taking the power back. Yeah, mm. highly recommend. And you've got a piece called Light in Darkness, which is an animation where you say you were battling with some demons within your lucid dream. So I guess it, it's quite a, a cleansing experience as well. Like you say, if you harness it in a certain way. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that came from. I think I was maybe having a bit of a dark year as well, or a dark, a dark period of time. And I was, I was noticing myself, even though I was very deep into this dreaming, um, that I was starting to get a lot more nightmares again. Uh, and just slowly through a period of understanding the dream space and understanding myself a little bit better, I was able to kind of relinquish myself with these regular occurrent nightmares. Um, and yeah, that piece was kind of commemorating. And some of the ideas came from, from experiences that, um, yeah, I, I found that having, kind of like my child self, you know, how we're having this moment of fear inside of a nightmare and wanting to escape it, realizing you can be in a nightmare and you can confront the, the fear, whatever it may be, kind of dead in the eyes and go and give it a hug and show it some love. I know it sounds really bizarre, but you, you can go up to that demon, just, just give it a hug and just say like, you know, you, you're kind of knowing that this is some subconscious knot inside of me, and it's like this is some fear I have in my waking life. It's manifested itself in this this kind of nasty subconscious experience. And you can go up to it, and you can yeah, show it some love, and you can kind of melt the nightmare. You can either enter a beautiful dream from there, or you can just wake up feeling blissful. Like, I don't know how many of you yeah, have you ever woken up from a nightmare feeling good and blissful? Like it's not normally what happens. So, would recommend. Can I ask you a question on that? How how um, hard do you find it, like, trying to, um, like, not gather your thoughts, but almost, like, put what you're dreaming into the work? Like, is there is it sometimes just, like, so bizarre that you find it actually, like, the the engine, like, the render is, like, actually limiting to what you can do? Or do you find that it's actually, like, quite easy to put into, like, uh, reality what, what you've been dreaming? Good question. I mean, sometimes, sometimes if it's like a specific object, it might be slightly easier. For example, like I think I had a dream where I looked. I was like walking along the pavement and I looked down between two cars and I saw a cat with my head, and I just burst out laughing in the dream because it was such a surprise. And then I woke up and then that's that's found its way into my pieces of feedback. Now this kind of cat with my head, <laughs> um, and that that was a slightly easier one because it's a single object. But yeah, trying to capture the like the fluidity of dreams is often very challenging as i find that often in dreams like, everything is so dynamic there's no like if you try to look at text close mm. up it kind of you know you, from a distance you can kind of read text and it says yeah i don't know fire or something like that and then the closer up you look to it, it 
and the more you stare at it, the more it kind of takes on this almost hieroglyphic quality to it. Um, these kind of glyphs that are constantly changing. And you start to realize that like maybe your focal point has some kind of solidity to it, but a lot of your periphery and dreams is very fluid and, and moving and changing. Trying to, as I'm sure you know, with some Blender experience, that trying to create kind of yeah. fluid dynamics uh, in render engines is very challenging. So I, I found some other things. Um, kind of emulate that but mm. yeah I, I don't know if i'll ever be able to truly create a dream yeah um, no there's certain bits yeah. that I, mean, I always find that like it's always i always have weird dreams but it's always just like weird characters i've maybe met once in my life and they're kind of just reoccurring and, this, and i'm going on these random events of these people that i've probably met for about five seconds so i always think it's quite <laughs> interesting sometimes i'm like oh it's quite a cool concept but then i'm like this is just completely bizarre and it's just like um so impossible to even like fathom when i wake up I'm like this is such a yeah. weird dream it's hard translating that to other people yeah well, that's the thing trying to explain to someone so else to you, why it to was you, but, yeah, yeah. And then to them, it's like, what? The, why is that weird? And you're like, no, no, it was my mum, yeah. but it was also my dad, but it was also a cupboard or something like that. Just trying to get that across is not easy. So. Super interesting as well, because I'm pretty sure not to, you know, talk the whole thing about it, but I, I watched a, um, one of the rare interviews about Epic Swin, and I'm pretty sure he mentions um, lucid dreaming in his thing about how a lot of his sounds are captured from dreams, which is really interesting because almost to recreate a sound after hearing it in a dream is just like to me that sounds very hard to do as someone who tries to like make music and sometimes like i'll hum along but trying to do that from like a dream is a very interesting so i think the whole the whole dream uh space is super interesting on on art as a as a as a whole yeah i, I think i might have seen that interview yeah well. <laughs> I, one I, of the, really, I, only ones he's done one in the last like five years or something or ten totally years. yeah I, I, if I met, I, I'd actually planned that if I was going to meet him, I was going to ask him about lucid dreaming. Yeah, that would have been a good, a good challenge for you. But, but one day, there's a very famous um, piece of music as well called the. Well, it's kind of it's known as the Devil's Trill Sonata. I think there's another name for it, uh, but it was a classical musician called Tartini that famously uh, dreamt of. I think he dreamt of the devil turning up to him at the end of his bed and tuning his violin for him in exchange for a soul. That's where a lot of these myths come from. <laughs> Um, and played him the most beautiful piece of music you've ever heard. And then Tartini woke up, wrote the piece down, somehow managed to translate it, uh, and it became his most famous piece. And you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's It's very beautiful. I think I'm quite interested in how, since earlier you said you want to work with some more fine artists and you want to sort of get back into painting a little bit, I'm quite curious how you would do that, considering that painting and even sculpture is... I think there's a lot more limitations to how you can maybe replicate aspects of a dream or a dreamscape in those mediums versus Blender. Yeah, it's a good point. That that's a challenge that uh, I'll definitely have to face. I'm, and actually, when I say I'm getting into uh, painting and sculpture, like funnily, I'm so stuck on screens that like all of my painting and sculpture ideas that I've been drawing down had screens in them. I've been looking at getting like a LCD screen trying to find some cheap ones on ebay uh, and then stick acetate build a frame around them stick acetate over the screen and create these kind of live paintings i've been doing a lot of live more live works at the moment with a software called obs um, and creating these kind of moving pictures that i can then paint onto the acetate and have it kind of um live reactive even sculptures have been looking at little, little lcd arduino screens that are kind of 
two inches wide um, that I can put little animations on and stick them in. Um, but probably just speaks to my um, addiction to screens and anything else. <laughs> you mentioned earlier you wanted to talk about NFTs as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so I don't know if this would be a touchy thing to bring up because <laughs> when no, me and my too. friend were having a conversation about um, lockdown and both of us, I mean, we started off as online friends and um, now we see each other quite regularly and we were talking about the phase when it felt like all of our favourite artists were putting out NFTs and sort of tweeting them out and their fan base is being like, oh, what's this? Like, money hungry, da 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 um, Or like, you know, going on about the environment. And I was wondering, since it's been quite a while since I think you put out your last NFTs, and I don't think there's as much noise around them now as there was maybe, you know, in lockdown, if you think they still have as much value as they promised to kind of artists and the art world in general, looking back? Good question. I, I'll be honest. I, I'm not hundred percent sure. I, it does definitely seem like a lot of the hype has died down. Um, I released one on Ethereum, but I was quite an early adopter to it. I think I, yeah, some other artists had mentioned it to me. This is before they kind of like blew up. Um, and, you know, I, I thought I thought it was brilliant. I, I, I immediately thought, oh, here's a way I can break away from doing commission work for other people and I can make works myself and sell them as a painter, et cetera, would sell their work. Um, but then uh, I think it was the Medium article from, I believe it was Memo Atkin came about that kind of revealed the um, environmental impact from pieces. I realized this, this you know, single piece I'd sold had this like huge environmental impact that I was pretty shocked by. So I dropped them. Uh, and then it wasn't until maybe a year or two later that somebody told me about a different blockchain, um, which is the Tezos blockchain. So I do, I do still occasionally release NFTs um, on Tezos, but it's a totally different environment. Uh, it's much less about money making. Uh, and what I found there is much more of a, it's kind of like an artist support network. Um, you know, the amount you make on it is, is far, far, far less. It's, it's, you know, it's, um, yeah, pretty like, yeah, I'd say it's, it's mostly artists on there and collectors. There are, there are still people that are interested in try, using it to try and make a million. And those are the kind of people that kind of gave it a bad rep. They're kind of like pump and dump, whatever you call it, like buy high, buy low, sell high, all the kind of like the business and finance bros that got into it um, kind of gave it a bit of a bad rep. Um, and you know, yeah, uh, so yeah, I try, I try sell them on this uh, Tezos blockchain occasionally. Um, but yeah, that has kind of a different principle to it. It's kind of like you buy, you buy someone buys your work, and in return, you buy someone else's work, and in return, they buy someone else's work. It's kind of like lots of artists just supporting each other's work. It's like an artist stuff. marketplace almost sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah it sounds like the yeah, artist support totally. pledge actually that was on. Yeah. Instagram. And I mean, it's also I remember similar. Marina Abramovich saying that NFTs produced a sort of opportunity for artists that previously couldn't stop their work being ripped off, meant that they oh, could avoid yeah. having their work ripped off. So especially people like performance artists, um, digital artists, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but yeah, it was, it was a big boom, like you say, Nico, wasn't it? And it was during lockdown where everyone had a lot of time to think about it. Yeah. I think a lot of the discourse kind of just came from the fact that 
we were all at home and a lot of people who were a bit more chronically online and consuming a lot of art and a lot of music were kind of very overwhelmed by the amount of nfts that were coming out in like the space of a year yeah i think i think as as the years have gone now like and i'd say like 95 percent of people that were doing it then have kind of dropped off it now and i think probably some of that's due to disinterest but i think a lot of that is also due to people a lot 95 or so percent of people were in it back then to just try and make a million just yeah. trying to make loads of money mm. no interest in art yeah. like and you can see because most of the nfts being sold were like uh ape thing the board apes yeah, really <laughs> yeah, millions yeah, exactly. and millions and all the celebrities would be like collecting them on their twitter and like reposting yeah what they've just bought today and it's just yeah so i, I think um I, I mean that does still exist but a lot of that's dropped off now and it seems to be the kind of people that are interested in about exchanging digital art and digital art networks um it's still a, a surviving in that scene now. Uh, so that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm interested in but i'm also like not too deeply immersed in it it's something i'm just kind of dipping my toes in every now and again yeah have you got any like exhibitions or any shows or any releases you'd like to to sort of plug before we start wrapping up um i have a piece coming out with my girlfriend in like a month or so that's the, oh, nice. maybe the best thing i've ever made um yeah she's a very talented musician called bethany lay mm. uh and yeah we i've made this piece that i've been working on since february this year kind of constantly um which is exploring uh reincarnation and uh four dimensions uh sounds it's kind of hard to describe over over voice but uh but you'll see um so yeah i'm really really basically really just looking forward to that so keep an eye out for that in a month or so oh and also i have a mailing list that i've been plugging because my instagram got hacked um so i'm trying to trying to build build audiences off of um social media platforms so sign up to my mailing list on my website uh, if you can that'd be great yeah great and your website is zedzima.co.uk so z-e-z-i-m-a.co.uk fantastic um thanks so much for having me it's been lovely um, and lovely to meet you um, nico and i both thank you so much yeah thanks for listening to artcast season four episode three for this episode we were joined by alfie dwyer and i was also joined from two students from our art foundation nico conte and ivo evans you can check out more of alfie's work at his website zed zezima.co.uk that's spelled z-e-z-i-m-a.co.uk we hope that you can join us next time where we'll be joined by the fine art artists uh, wooden harrison <laughs>